I'm pretty much, in my nature, a competitive person. And sort of how, how our family is. Uh, we, we have family gatherings. We tend to play a lot of games, and it can get kind of intense. There are, I'm not going to say this. I won't put my finger on anyone, but, you know, in my extended family, there have been, you know, things thrown and people yelling at each other. But no, not really. Um, but we... You know, if you watch an Indiana basketball game with me, you would see how competitive I can be. Uh, I want to win, and I want them to win. And I've had to apologize to numbers of people who have watched games with me and have gone away going, wow, I had no idea he was that intense about that. But I am. I'm a competitive person. But you know, it's sort of how our culture is. Our culture is very competitive. We grow up comparing ourselves and competing with other people. I mean, what's one of the questions that you learn to ask when you're even a child, all through your schooling? What grade did you get? And you go, oh, okay. And, and, and success is, I got a better grade than you did. You get older and it's, how much do you make? Or it's, it's how fast are you being promoted? And all these questions, but our culture is so often about competition and comparison. And that's how we view success. The successful people are the ones who are driven to compete and to win. And there is a lot of good in that. But there's also some things that aren't so good in that. And the good and the bad of that mindset of our culture bleeds into the church. And I think if you ask most people, what makes the church, how do you measure success in the church? Probably it would have something to do with numbers. How many of this? How much of that? How often? How big? How fast? And, and it, it's become a part of our church culture as well. And, and like I said, there are some good things to that, and there are some biblical things about that. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, after Peter preaches this great sermon, Luke says 3,000 people were added to the church that day. They cared about numbers. In chapter 6, after they set apart people to help the widows, it says, and daily there were people added to the church. They're watching and counting. But we could also get so, so, so immersed in numbers that that's all that matters. And we view success purely based on how much, how many, how fast. What if, what if when we think about the kingdom, We view success with things like faithfulness, servanthood, surrender, sharing, truth, love. something about those things and, and using those things as a measure of success that's difficult because it's hard to quantify those characteristics. I think that might be the point. 
is that success in the church is less about what we can quantify and more about who we are. When you look at Acts chapter 2 or chapter 4, and you get this description of what the church is like at the end of that chapter, the first thing he says is that they all shared what they had with each other. They all had things in common. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. It was a mindset of what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. Because sharing what we have is more important than someone having more or less. It's always intrigued me that it looks like the very last words that Jesus speaks on the cross are, it is finished. John tells us in chapter 19, those, Jesus says that and then he dies. What Jesus is really saying is, Father, I've been successful. I, I did it. All the things that you wanted me to do, all the things that I came to do, I did them. I haven't left anything undone. I've been successful. But really, I mean, think about it. Everything Jesus does is backwards to how the culture thinks and often how we think. I mean, he's born to pretty nondescript parents in a nondescript place. He, he spends the first 30 years of his life probably building things in the carpenter shop. And then he gets to the last three and a half, in only three and a half years, is he actually out doing ministry, which seems to be why he came in the first place. And, and he does that ministry in just confined to a small country. And within that country, most of his time is spent in a small place that is not the seat of power at all. And, and in that place, when he, when he, he, tell, he does things for people, but he doesn't heal everyone. He doesn't solve every problem. And when he does go to the seat of power, he tends to offend the people who have the power and could really prop up his career. And he hangs out with people that nobody else wants. And the 12 men that he gathers around him the closest, you know, really, they leave a lot to be desired. And then he gets to the end and he allows himself to be arrested and beaten and tortured and crucified. I can guarantee you no one walked away from the cross that Friday and thought, now that's success. Until Sunday. And then on Sunday, everything changed. And see, I think that's the hard thing for us is that we have a small view of what success in the kingdom means because we have a small view of the kingdom. We forget the kingdom is bigger than what we can see. The kingdom is so much more. But it's a struggle for us. You know, we wrestle with envy and jealousy and competitiveness. It's a part of our human nature that we struggle with those things. And we wrestle to get there. But we aren't alone. We aren't the first people to do that. If you look at, the, at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes, Dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. 
That starts well, doesn't it? I had to talk as though you belonged to this world, as though you were infants in Christ. I had to feed you with milk and not with solid food because you weren't ready for anything stronger. And you still aren't ready, for you're still controlled by your sinful nature. And he says, you are jealous of one another and you quarrel with each other. Doesn't that prove that you are controlled by your sinful nature? Aren't you living like people of the world? When one of you says, I'm a follower of Paul, and another says, I'm a follower of Apollos, aren't you acting just like people of the world? Lays it out. It's been going on a long time. There's a, there's a legend from the 4th century church of, uh, of some demons who were trying to get this hermit monk to sin, and they couldn't. They tried everything. They could not get the man to sin. So they go back to Satan and tell him the story, and we don't know what to do. And he says, here's what you do. You go whisper in his ear, your brother has just been appointed the bishop of Antioch. And they're thinking, how would that help? That's good news. They go back, they whisper in his ear, and immediately he becomes envious and jealous. It's the struggle of humanity. So what do we do? I think we have to make some conscious decisions in the midst of our struggle. Because in the kingdom, when we think about success, it's something like this. We celebrate, we celebrate the success of other people even when it feels like they're being blessed and we're not. That's hard. In this 13th chapter of Acts, you have these, Luke points out, four men who are leaders in the church in Antioch. They are, they are the spiritual elite of that church. And God speaks to them and says, set apart Paul and Barnabas. And the other two guys are left going, what about us? And how tempting it would have been for them to become envious and jealous of Paul and Barnabas, but they're not. It tells us that that they lay hands on them, they pray for them, and they send them out. And when they come back and report what God has been doing through their ministry, they celebrate together. Because... That's what you do in the kingdom. You celebrate successes that other people are having, even if it feels like you've been a little bit left behind and you're not having quite the spiritual victories that they're having. In the 18th chapter of Acts that we just read, Paul has been preaching there in the city and and Priscilla and Aquila, this couple, come and they start preaching with him. And, and people start listening to them. But Paul's not jealous. He says, look, you guys are doing a great work here. I'm going to go to the next city and set that up for the next thing that we do. Go for it. And while they're preaching, here comes Apollos. And he's described in, in language that gives you the impression that he is extremely gifted. An extremely gifted preacher. An extremely smart, intelligent man who can who knows how to explain about Jesus the Messiah. And he is gifted. And Paulus and Priscilla and Aquila could easily be jealous of him, but they're not. What do they do? They help him. They bring him home and they say, look, 
you've got some great gifts, but there's some things. Let us teach you a few things that we've learned that you haven't yet learned so that you can be even more effective in what you're doing. And if that means people start thinking more about you than about us, okay. Because it's about the kingdom. It's hard for us. Move the circle out one ring. We also celebrate the successes of other ministries, even when it feels like they're being blessed and our ministries aren't. And that too can be a struggle. We get so passionate about certain ministries, certain things that the church is doing. And and it's good. God doesn't tell us that we all do the same thing. God doesn't call us all to, to see things the same way and have the same passions about all the same things. So we have certain things that, that just light our fires and we give our passion to those and we give our energy to those. And that's exactly what we should do. But sometimes it's hard when we're wrestling and struggling and it feels like not much is happening and not many people are paying that much attention and, and we're not getting that much in the budget. And this other ministry or these other ministries are exploding. And they're getting lots of the budget and lots of attention and lots of people. It's hard. But in the kingdom, we make a conscious choice to celebrate those ministries anyway. And we wrestle with that. I mean, Paul's... Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, look, you guys have got this thing about I follow him and him and him. And he said, the truth of the matter is all the ministry we do only means anything because of Jesus. I plant Apollos waters, but God makes the difference. And it's imperative for us to grasp that truth. Move the rings one more circle. We don't just celebrate other people and other ministries, but we celebrate the successes of other churches, even when it feels like they're being more blessed than we are. I'll be honest with you, this is the hardest one for me. I wanted to just stop after the second one. We don't really need to go any further than that. This is okay. No, we need to. As a minister, when you get together with other ministers... How's things going at your church? And the temptation is to exaggerate the good and minimize the bad. And it feels like your self-worth as a pastor is tied into how is your church doing? What are your numbers like? What kinds of things are happening there? And you listen to other people tell their stories. And it's hard not to become envious and jealous and feel competitive. In fact, one of the temptations that goes through your mind is, well, they're probably watering down the gospel, right? I can't tell you how many times God has convicted me about my attitude. And I know that he's, he is calling me and us to celebrate what he is doing in every place, even if it looks like what he's doing in other places is more than what he's doing in our place. Fred Craddock tells about um, 
going back home to the little town where he was born and raised and went to school in West Tennessee. And he had, he had some friends still there, actually a number of people. It was a small town. And he went to visit one of his friends, and uh, Sunday night they went to church. And as he sat in the church, it was a relatively new building that they'd had, and he hadn't been in it before. And he was looking around. They had some beautiful stained glass windows, as we do. And he was admiring them. And on each of the windows near the bottom, there was a little plaque engraved in that's talked about, you know, this window was given in memory of someone, by someone, in honor of someone, it was, you know, that kind of thing. What was weird is that he didn't recognize any of the names of the people on those windows. He thought that was strange because yeah, he'd been gone a little while, but not that long, and he grew up there, and it was a small town, and he knew everyone, and they knew him, and he just thought it was strange that he didn't recognize any of the names on the windows. And so after church, he said to his friend, I love the windows, but what's up with the names? I didn't recognize any of them. These all new people to town, that many? I think I laughed a little bit. He said, no, that's a funny story. He said, those windows were actually made, ordered by a church in St. Louis from a place in Italy. And when they arrived, they didn't fit. And so they... They publicized that they would sell them cheap. And we saw that and thought, man, it's a great way to get cheap stained glass windows. And so we bought them. I actually think that our church did the same thing, if I remember the story, right? But they, so they brought these windows and he said, wow, that's great. And he said, you know, great deal. You're able to get those. But what are you going to do about those names of people that have nothing to do with your church? He said, you know, we thought about that and we talked about it. And we decided we would leave them. Because we felt like in our little church, it was probably a good thing to regularly remember that there are other Christians around the world doing things for the kingdom. I think it's right. We didn't read this, but in Acts chapter 11, it tells about the church in Antioch. Antioch sort of a Johnny-come-lately of the church, early church. I mean, it's, the church is born in Jerusalem. That's where the power is. That's where the Holy Spirit came. That's where the Christians are. Until the persecution started. And the persecution scattered all the Christians. And they went to Antioch. And it seems as though the church in Antioch begins to explode with people. In fact, it is, Luke tells us in 11 that it's the first place that the followers of Jesus are called Christians. Impressive things are happening there. And they're not happening in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is shrinking. And later in Romans 15, Paul says that he's collecting an offering from all the churches where he visits for the church in Jerusalem because they're struggling so much. And you can imagine how hard that would be for the church in Jerusalem. Because they would want, I mean, this is the church that started it all. They're supposed to help other churches, not vice versa. And yet when Paul comes back and he tells the church in Jerusalem all the good things that are happening in Antioch and Rome and Corinth and Ephesus, they don't mope and pout, they celebrate. They rejoice because God's at work. One of the things we're going to start next Sunday is every week we're going to pray for a different ministry that the church had, a different ministry of the church and a different church in our area because we need to celebrate what God is doing. And I am convinced that praying is one of the most 
profound and significant ways we do that. In this story in Acts 13, where God calls Paul and Barnabas and not the other guys, it's intriguing that in the New Living Translation, verse 3 says, after more fasting and prayer, they laid hands on them and sent them out. That sentence intrigues me. They've already been fasting and praying. And now God comes and says, I'm choosing these two and not these two. And I have a feeling that those two guys said, we need to pray some more. Because we're wrestling with this. How come we didn't get chosen? Why did they get chosen and not us? But they pray it and they pray it through. And by the time they get done praying, they come around and now they're ready to celebrate. And I'm convinced that praying will do that for us because in prayer we have open hearts to God and we begin and we ask God to help us see the bigger kingdom picture than we often see without prayer. And maybe, like with forgiveness, our first prayer can be, Lord, thank you for blessing that ministry and that church and that person. And we celebrate with them. But maybe our prayer, first prayer that we can pray is, Lord, Help me to want to pray, thank you for blessing that church and that ministry and that person. And maybe it's, Lord, help me to want to want to pray, thank you for blessing that church and that ministry and that person. I don't think God minds that we are struggling. He just meets us where we are if we'll let him. And prayer is always a big part of that. This this week I was down in the prayer room I spent a little time just contemplating the station that's related to this sermon today. And the picture down there is of a whole bunch of people's hands clapping. I sat and thought about that for a little bit. I've been on both sides of it, and I have to admit, it's a lot more fun to have people clap for you than to be clapped for, than than to clap for. But I have found great joy in clapping for people I love. My wife, my children, my parents, my siblings, my friends. And I suspect you have as well. And if it's people we love, we don't really feel envy or jealousy. We feel joy. Because a part of something that's important to us is is doing good. And I think that's what God is asking for in the church. We, we pray for God to give us grace to celebrate the successes of others, even if it feels like we aren't being quite that successful. And I'm convinced that we have that mindset. We will, we will, we will live in that, in that kingdom perspective when we come to realize that our worth and our value is not in what we do, it's in the love of God our Father. I I think one of the reasons we struggle so much with envy and jealousy and competitiveness with each other is because we believe and we've been told and we're convinced it's true that our value and our worth is about what we accomplish. It's not that what we accomplish is insignificant. God gifts us so we can accomplish things. But that's not where our worth and our value lies. Our worth and value is that we're children of God. 
whether we accomplish things or not, whether anybody knows what we do or not, we're children of God. That changes everything. I think that's the struggle that the elder son in the story of the prodigal son has. He's jealous and envious of his younger brother, but their issue really isn't that he's jealous. The issue is he's not convinced that his father really loves him. Not because of what he does, but just because of who he is. So he's got to prove his love to the prove his worth to the father in order to get his love. And then his brother comes in and he's a scoundrel. He didn't do anything good, and his father loves him anyway. And if, you're, if we're bound up in thinking our worth is in what we do, then grace, like the father extends to that younger son, is not going to be exhilarating to us. It's going to be irritating to us. Because they didn't earn it. We get grace because we earned it. But the whole point is grace cannot be earned. Grace is just given. And love cannot be earned. Love is just given. And this... Older son who is wrestling thinks, I do work so that the father will love me. What he can't grasp is that the father loves him. So go do some work. And far too often our perspective is, I do work for the kingdom so that I will hear the approval of my father. And the scriptures tell us in a thousand different ways, you are loved and approved by your father. Now, go do the work of the kingdom. And it is not the same thing. If we could just grasp and embrace our father's unconditional love, we wouldn't need to compete with each other anymore. We just celebrate. Because their successes doesn't minimize, their success doesn't minimize God's love for me. My success doesn't minimize God's love for them. We're all in this thing together. And I think we'd be thinking a whole lot more of any win for the kingdom is a win for us. And any loss for the kingdom is a loss for us. Because we're part of something bigger than just us. Something bigger than our little kingdoms. We're part of the kingdom. We're children of the king. Now, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with group projects. I don't know how you feel about that. But, you know, I, I have an affinity about group projects because it was in, the, in a group project in seminary that Cindy and I really got to know each other, and out of that, our romance blossomed, and we ended up getting married. So there is a soft spot in my heart for group projects. But as a student, in general, I wasn't so thrilled about group projects. Now, if you're an overachiever, you hate group projects, right? Because there's always some person who's slouching over there, letting you do all the work. And if you're an overachiever, you do the work. And if you're an underachiever, you probably have a better, more of an affinity to group projects because they're going to do the work. And when your grade depends on what everybody does and everybody in the group gets the same grade, group projects can be a little bit irritating and frustrating. But there is something about the nature of group projects 
that I think has the potential to bring out the best in us. When we're all on our own, my grade is my grade and your grade is your grade, we might have a study group, we might help each other a little bit, but, you know, it's really about what I need to do for myself. But when you're in a group project and and everybody in the group is going to get the same grade, you are all of a sudden much more concerned about the person who's not getting it, getting it. And the person who is slow and behind catching up. And you start investing yourself a whole lot more in other people in the group because you know the group grade depends on everyone participating and everyone getting it. And I think, I think that the church is a lot more like a group project than we want to admit. And maybe than we like. I'm not saying it's all that. But there is something to be said for the church, the kingdom, being about all of us. About God working wherever God chooses to work and us celebrating that because in the kingdom, we're all children of our Heavenly Father. And your success is mine and my success is yours and your pain is my pain and my pain is your pain. We're in this thing together. Because we love the Father, we love each other. And it changes how we view success in the kingdom. Gracious Father, you know our struggle. Give us the grace to find our worth and our value in you. And to see each other as a part of the team, of the group, of the kingdom. So that we can celebrate and rejoice with each other. We pray this with the grace of Christ. Amen.